Welcome back to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is episode 129, Admiral Can Be Deadly. The intro to this episode, Come Rest in This Bosom, is said to be Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song. Today, Mr. Poe and I, where or at least the ghost of Mr. Poe and I, will continue to take a deep dive into the times, life, and works of America's Shakespeare. Now, next week, I plan to finally have my episode about the actual interpreting of uh, Ricky Three by the Indianapolis Shakespeare Company. Ricky Three is a sort of a combination of Shakespeare and rap music in an incredible production. This month also marks Deaf Awareness Month, so don't miss the next episode of Celebrate Poe. Now, uh, as you may know, most authorities uh, give credit to Edgar Allan Poe for writing the first detective story in The Murders in the Rue Morgue. I will uh, delve into that story in more detail later, uh, and... um, Well, but first, I want to deal with uh, my own uh, medical detective story, uh, a detective story where I was the victim, and then I'll come back to the murderers in the Rue Morgue. Now, my story all began with a dental procedure. I was having extremely painful headaches, and this is all true. I was having extremely painful headaches and ended up in the emergency room. Some x-rays showed that I had an abscess, and I went to uh, a dental surgeon to have it taken care of. He put me under laughing gas, but still the pain was excruciating beyond anything I could have imagined. When the needle slowly went in and the dentist was pulling the tooth, I was gripping the arms of the chair and felt like a huge linebacker had kicked me in the mouth over and over. Are you getting the idea that that it hurt? I mean, it really hurt. Well, the dental surgeon gave me some pain medicine to take every eight hours. Uh, I have the uh, empty uh, bottle right here. It was for ibuprofen. I was supposed to take 300 milligrams every eight hours for pain. By the way, ibuprofen, also sold under the name of Advil, usually comes in dosages of 200 milligrams. And everywhere I've read uh, said that you shouldn't take more than six a day. In other words, 1,200 milligrams. The dosage uh, that was prescribed for me was 1,800 milligrams a day. And I know these numbers vary among different experts, but uh, I didn't understand the dangers then. And uh, being the somewhat compulsive person that I am, I kept a spreadsheet with ibuprofen listed every eight hours. Uh, It's all too easy to be groggy, start feeling pain, stagger to the painkiller bottle, and take a pill. Then get up two hours later for another pill, and then get up two hours later, and before you know it, you've either become addicted or suffered an overdose. And uh, some of you may know that uh, uh, there are various members of my family that have had problems with substances uh, that that have uh, ruined their lives, and I don't want to go down that road. Several times I would get up wanting a painkiller, 
go out and look at the spreadsheet. I'm a little bit disciplined that way, where I had faithfully marked down each time I took a pill and saw that, no, it was or wasn't time, an, an appropriate time for medicine. So uh, I stayed in bed for about a week and uh, went to uh, later to uh, a clinic for a non-related routine procedure that had been set weeks in advance, so I really couldn't cancel it exactly. But when I got there, and it didn't seem like it would be difficult, but when I got there, I uh, remarked to the nurse that my blood pressure was a bit high and I had been getting uh, very winded quite easily. Uh, I had not really walked around much, but this former marathoner had trouble walking 25 feet. I mean, why was this happening? I was even in a hospital gown and on a gurney ready for the procedure when a doctor came in and canceled the procedure before he even started. He said that it was far more important for me to deal with my hemoglobin level. Without getting too technical, and I had no idea what he was talking about, for some reason, my heart was having to work extra hard to deal with just basic functions. Normal hemoglobin levels for an adult male are 15. Mine, however, was 7.5. The doctor advised me to immediately go to the local hospital to find out what the problem was. So I waited for hours in the emergency room, only to be admitted to the hospital. Now, I had fasted the night before the procedure, uh, but uh, the procedure, of course, had been canceled. Uh, and I had to wait until the next morning to have another procedure, also not eating, except for a clear liquid meal before midnight. Uh, then uh, I couldn't eat anything until the next morning after that midnight. So I think about 3 o'clock at night, I would have traded my computer for a sandwich. I was starving. And for several nights afterwards, I dreamt about food, especially big, jumbo, juicy hot dogs for some reason. I talked with a dietician later, and she says such cravings are totally normal, not psychological, that when the body is deprived of food, it physically craves nourishment all the time, at least at first. Anyway, for some reason, I had developed anemia, constantly weak, and the doctors were not sure about the reason. Fortunately, they did not have to depend solely on hunches. The next morning, I had an endoscopy. This was the reason I could not eat anything. I was put under laughing gas, and this will hopefully explain what an endoscopy is, uh, but it wasn't painful. At least I didn't feel anything. I didn't know what was happening. A camera was inserted into my stomach to take pictures of the situation. I mean, it must have been a teeny tiny camera. They discovered, and I hope I have this right, heart palpitations and stomach bleeding due to anemia. Uh, I know a medical student would state it probably more accurately and differently, uh, but uh, I was one weak puppy. There's no question about that or tired old man, depending on your perspective. So the pictures from the endoscopy showed uh, that I had a bleeding stomach, mystery partially solved, and the cause was none other than taking ibuprofen or Advil. 
Now, before I was discharged, my doctor came to my room and pointed out the cause of the problem and more or less solved the mystery. He explained that while ibuprofen can be an excellent painkiller for the majority of people, some individuals, like me I guess, have an extremely negative reaction to the drug. Now, my primary care physician had earlier noted that I had heart palpitations, and this was before uh, I had gone. Uh, uh, this was before I had uh, you know taking some of the other things, and um, I had an appointment uh, to get a twenty-four hour a day heart monitor, uh, but uh, she told me to cancel the appointment until I was more stabilized on the corrective medicine uh, that I received from the hospital. Uh, until then, the results would not really be valid. They wouldn't be getting useful information. So it's taken me weeks to get better, and I appreciate your patience. It didn't even hit me uh, to do a podcast. I, I was in no position to even think about it. I know when you're doing a podcast, sometimes the subject stays on your mind, and that was definitely true when I was trying to figure out what was happening to me before the doctors found out the solution to the mystery of what was going on. In a sense, it was like a detective story, but against a medical background. Now, the first detective story in literature is generally agreed to be The Murderers in the Room Morgue, a short story by Edgar Allan Poe published in Graham's Magazine in 1841. C. Auguste Dupin is a man in Paris who solves the mystery of the brutal murder of two women, and even though numerous witnesses heard a suspect, no one could agree on what language was spoken. And at the murder scene, Dupont finds a hair that uh, doesn't appear to be human. And maybe I should interject a spoiler alert here uh, before I go any further. Uh, Celebrate Poe will, although, uh, delve into the murders and the room morgue in more detail in the future. But anyway, as the first fictional detective, Poe's Dupont displays many traits which literary conventions in subsequent subsequent fictional detective show, including Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. Many later characters, for example, follow Poe's model of the brilliant detective, his personal friend who serves as narrator, and the final revelation being presented before the reasoning that leads up to it. Now, for the first time in this podcast series, I better point out that some of the rest of this podcast episode might gross you out and is not for delicate sensitivities. The story begins with a lengthy commentary, and I'm not going to, again, go into this in great detail, on the nature of reasoning and Dupont reading the newspaper accounts of a baffling double murder. Madame Les Espagnes and her daughter have been found dead at their home in the Rue Morgue, a fictional street in Paris. 
The mother was found with multiple broken bones and her throat so deeply cut that her head fell off when her body was moved. The daughter was found strangled to death and shoved upside down into a chimney. The murders occurred in a fourth-floor room that was locked from the inside. On the floor were found a bloody straight razor and several bloody tufts of gray hair. Pretty, gr- pretty gruesome stuff. Several witnesses reported hearing two voices at the time of the murder, one French, but they disagreed on the language spoken by the other. The speech was not clear, and all the witnesses claimed not to know the language they believed the second voice was speaking. Because none of the witnesses could agree on the language spoken by the second voice, Dupont concluded that they were not hearing a human voice at all. He also pointed out that the murderer would have had to have superhuman strength to force the daughter's body up the chimney. He formulates a method by which the murderer could have entered the room and killed both women, involving an agile climb up a lightning rod and a leap to a a set of open window shutters. Showing an unusual tuft of hair that he had recovered from the scene and demonstrating the impossibility of the daughter being strangled by a human hand, Dupont concluded that an orangutan killed the women. He placed an advertisement or advertisement in the local newspaper asking if anyone had lost such an animal. Circumstances in the story lead to Dupont meeting a soldier who had brought two orangutans to Paris. The sailor explained that he had captured the orangutan while in Borneo and brought it back to Paris, but he had trouble keeping it under control. When he saw the orangutan attempting to shave its face with his straight razor, imitating his morning grooming, it fled the streets and reached the Rue Morgue, where it climbed up and into the house. The orangutan seized the mother by the hair and was waving the razor, imitating a barber, when she screamed in fear, well, I don't blame her, and it flew into a rage and ripped her hair out, slashed her throat, and strangled the daughter. The sailor climbed up the lightning rod in an attempt to reach the animal. Fearing punishment by its master, the orangutan threw the mother's body out the window and stuffed the daughter into the chimney before fleeing. Hi, it's the ghost of Mr. Poe. You know, I began this episode by talking about, uh, well, what you might call uh, a true medical detective story. Then I talked about what is generally agreed to be the first literary detective story, your The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Would you care to end this episode by reading from that story for a slightly different perspective? And why don't you start here uh, with uh, this section about the sailor? Now, warning to those of you listening to this podcast episode, this excerpt is not for the squeamish. Certainly, Mr. Bartley. Now, I do not propose to follow the man in the circumstantial narrative which he now detailed. 
What he stated was in substance this. He had lately made a voyage to the Indian archipelago. A party of which he formed one landed at Bonio and passed into the interior upon an excursion of pleasure. Himself and the captain had captured the orangutan. Uh, this companion dying, the animal fell into his own exclusive possession. After great trouble occasioned by the intractable ferocity of his captive during the home voyage, the sailor at length succeeded in lodging the orangutan safely at his own residence in Paris, where, not to attract towards himself the unpleasant curiosity of his neighbors, he kept it carefully secluded until such time as it should recover from a wound in the foot received from a splinter on board ship. His ultimate design was to sell it. Returning home from some sailor's frolic on the night, or rather in the morning of the murderer, of the murder, he found his prisoner occupying his own bedroom, into which he had broken from a closet adjoining, where he had been, as it was thought, securely confined. The beast, razor in hand and fully lathered, was sitting before a looking-glass, attempting the operation of shaving, in which he had no doubt previously watched his master through the keyhole of the closet. Terrified at the sight of so dangerous a weapon in possession of an animal so ferocious and so well able to use it, the man, for some moments, was at a loss what to do. He had been accustomed, however, to quiet the creature, even in its fiercest moods, by the use of a strong wagoner's whip, and to this he now resorted. Merely upon sight of it, the orangutan sprang out at once through the door of the chamber, down the stairs, and thence through a window, unfortunately, into the street. The Frenchman followed in despair. The ape, razor still in hand, occasionally stopping to look back and gesticulate at his pursuer until the latter had nearly come up with him. He then again made off. In this matter, the chase continued for some time. The streets were profoundly quiet, as it was nearly three o'clock in the morning. In passing down an alley in the rear of the Rue Trayon, the fugitive's attention was arrested by a light, the only one apparent except those of the town lamps, gleaming from the open window of Madame L'Espagnier's chamber in the fourth story of her house. Rushing to the building, he perceived the lightning rod, clambered up with inconceivable agility, grasped the shutter, which was thrown fully back against the wall, and by its means swung himself directly upon the headboard of the bed. The whole feat did not occupy a minute. The shutter was kicked open again by the orangutan as he entered the room. The sailor, in the meantime, was both rejoiced and perplexed. 
he had strong hopes of now recapturing the ape as it could scarcely escape from the trap into which it had ventured except by the rod, where it might be intercepted as it came down. On the other hand, there was much cause for anxiety as to what the brute might do in the house. This latter reflection urged the man still to follow the fugitive. A lightning rod is ascended without difficulty, especially by a sailor, but when he had arrived as high as the window which lay far to his left, his career was stopped. The most that he could accomplish was to reach over so as to obtain a glimpse of the interior of the room. At this glimpse he nearly fell from his hold through excess of horror. Now it was that those hideous shrieks from Madame La Espagnier and her daughter, habited in their night clothes, had apparently been occupied in arranging some papers in the iron chest already mentioned, which had been wheeled into the middle of the room. It was open, and its contents lay beside it on the floor. Their backs must have been towards the window, and by the time elapsing between the screams and the ingress of the ape, it seems probable that he was not immediately perceived. The flapping, too, of the shutter would naturally have been attributed to the wind. As the sailor looked in, the gigantic beast had seized Madame L'Espagnier by the hair, which was loose as she had been combing it, and was flourishing the razor around her face in imitation of the motions of a barber. The daughter lay prostrate and motionless. She had swooned. The screams and struggles of the old lady, during which the hair was torn from her head, had the effect of changing the probably pacific purposes of the orangutan into those of ungovernable wrath. With one determined sweep of his muscular arm, he nearly severed her head from her body. The sight of blood inflamed his anger into frenzy. Gnashing his teeth and flashing fire from his eyes, he flew upon the body of the girl and embedded his fearful talons in her throat, retaining his grasp until she expired. His wandering and wild glances fell at this moment upon the hand of the bed, over which those of his master, glazed in horror, were just discernible. The fury of the beast, who no doubt bore still in mind the dreaded whip, was instantly converted into dread. Conscious of having deserved punishment, he seemed desirous of concealing his bloody deeds, and skipped agitation, throwing down and breaking the furniture as he moved, and dragging the bed from the bedstead. In conclusion, he seized first the corpse of the daughter, and thrust it up the chimney as it was found than that of the old lady, with which he rushed to throw it out the window. As the ape approached him with his mutilated burden, the sailor shrank against aghast to the rue to the rod, and rather gliding than clambering down it, hurried at once home, dreading the consequences of the butchery, and gladly abandoning in his terror all solicitude about the fate of the orangutan. 
The words heard by the party upon the staircase were the Frenchman's exclamations of horror and affright, commingled with the fiendish jabberings of the brute. I have scarcely anything to add. The orangutan must have escaped from the chamber by the rod just before the breaking of the door. He must have closed the window as he passed through it. He was subsequently caught by the owner himself. Thank you, Mr. Poe. In conclusion, Poe's imaginative detective story and my all-too-real medical detective story share a search for the unknown by individuals with special skills. In Poe's fictional case, the analytical Dupin, who seems to rely on a combination of hunches and reasoning, in my all-too-real medical detective story, the doctors involved seem to rely not only on hunches and reasoning, but science and education in their areas of expertise. Now, as for future episodes, don't forget that I finally have my episode about the actual interpreting of Ricky Three by the Indianapolis Shakespeare Company coming up next week sort of a combination of Shakespeare and rap music in an incredible production. If I, I actually started uh, writing this episode a few days after I interpreted for the deaf for the play, and this episode reflects some new information uh, about the Indianapolis Shakespeare Company that uh, has taken place since then. This month, by the way, also marks Deaf Awareness Month, and you certainly don't want to miss the following episode. Sources include The Murderers in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, a critical biography by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, a documentary life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips, and Advil Side Effects, Common, Severe, Long-Term, from the website drugs.com. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.